Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Spiritual Life. I am Father Bernard Utley. Today we will continue on the topic of contemplation. The contemplation we have been talking about in the last two episodes is merely the first beginnings of contemplation, the beginnings of the mystical prayer of infused contemplation. It begins very feebly and practically imperceptibly, but the transition period from ordinary ascetical prayer to mystical prayer is the crisis called the dark night of the senses. This is actually rather common, as I have proved in previous episodes. It is common but crucial to know how to recognize it and how to act within it so as not to give up and, and grow spiritually. This crisis and the prayer that accompanies it and produces has been called uh, many things. Prayer simplicity, prayer of simple regard, prayer of faith, or simply contemplation in its beginning stages, mind you. St. John of the Cross calls it simply infused contemplation. St. Teresa of Avila probably wouldn't call it contemplation because it's not uh, high enough for her, uh, as passive enough for her, but but uh, I think St. John of the Cross was correct. It is contemplation, just the beginning stages, and I gave you three signs to know that when that's happening. It's the gateway to the higher states of mystical prayer. It begins very dry, uh, arid, dark, confusing, and will end if you are, persevere in contemplation, in ecstatic joy, a taste of heaven on earth. Again, it is obvious of utmost importance to be able and willing to enter through that gate and persevere in the humble and difficult beginnings of contemplation in order to reach the heights. The prayer simplicity, or that crisis called the night of the senses, marks the passage from ascetical prayer to mystical prayer, from mere vocal prayer, aspirations, meditation, effective prayer, to contemplation. Strictly speaking, it's not possible to completely separate ascetical and mystical prayer because there will always have there will always be some blending in an individual soul. In other words, every ascetic has some element of mysticism in the sense that there is active in the soul sanctifying grace, actual graces, the gifts of the Holy Ghost, along with what the soul does with its own efforts. Uh, aided by grace, of course, but the soul has to act at mortification, penance, and other ascetical practices. And then in the mystic, there will always be need of ascetical practices to keep the soul recollected and humble and to make that the soul good soil for the seed of grace, for the grace of contemplation. So the mystic can never completely uh, be, be without need of penance and mortification. It needs that as well. The two ways, if we can call it that, go hand in hand. Uh, they're distinct but inseparable, the ascetical and mystical. As we progress, prayer becomes, however, more and more passive. God takes more and more control. Sanctity is really God's great art. Uh, the Holy Ghost is, is an artist, and he makes souls holy. We have to participate, but is primarily his, his work. We can't make ourselves holy. We don't have grace. We can't we're imperfect. We can't make ourselves perfect, but we have to participate and uh, cooperate with God's grace. The gifts of the Holy Ghost become more and more active, and the soul becomes more and more docile to the inspirations of divine grace. Saints 
uh, mystics and spiritual writers have divided up the various stages of contemplative prayer in various ways. The most famous and quite authoritative division was made by St. Teresa of Avila in her work Interior Castle, where she lists seven mansions, each level or mansion describing a step closer to God. The first three mansions are what has been called ordinary prayer in the sense that they are not mystical and they uh, vocal prayer, meditation, effective prayer. The fourth through seven mansions are considered by St. Teresa to be truly mystical con uh, contemplation and passive prayer. St. John of the Cross also considered the transitional stage between the third and fourth mansion to be infused and mystical. Again, just the beginning stage, or rather the beginning of the fourth mansion, which St. Teresa calls the prayer of quiet, it becomes very imperceptible in that beginning stage, and then it actually flowers into what would be called the prayer of quiet. So the fourth mansion um, to the seventh mansion are called by St. Teresa by the following names. The fourth is the prayer of quiet, and sometimes she lists as uh, a beginning stage of that the prayer of recollection. Um, the fifth mansion is the prayer of union. Sixth is ecstatic union and mystical espousal, espousals. This is betrothal, so you're in a sense betrothed to God. The seventh and final is spiritual marriage, or also called transforming union. So this is the seventh stage is the height of mystical contemplation and, and spiritual union with God in this life. Um, very rare. Uh, not every everyone reaches that. Uh, I believe it is generally considered that uh, St. John of the Cross reached that stage like three years before he died. But that is that, that is. Uh, uh, often saints would reach that on their deathbed or or the last moments of their life. The transition between the sixth and seventh mansion is marked by a spiritual trial called by St. John of the Cross, the night of the spirit. So again, we talked about the the dark night of the soul. Everyone has heard that term, but it's divided into two parts, the night of the sense and the night of the spirit. So when someone says, oh, I've been through the dark night many times, that's not true. Maybe they've been through some trials in their life, whatever. But when we talk about the dark night of the soul, it is it is, it is a specific mystical trial that is divided into two parts. And the first one, night of the senses, is common and comes to many. The night of the spirit is rather rare and far more advanced in the spiritual life. And the, the, the purification goes not just in our memory and imagination, but the depths of our will and intellect. It really reaches down and purifies the soul and makes it perfect and capable of receiving greater union with God. But that is quite rare. This is, it's a more intense and very rare trial. But both trials mark transitions to higher forms of prayer and union with God. Before I get into the various degrees of advanced prayer, which I think we'll have to wait till next episode, in this episode, I need to start by talking about some general points regarding uh, contemplation and mystical prayer, especially advanced mystical prayer. First, we have to recall what contemplation is. I defined contemplation in a previous episode as infused loving knowledge of God. This is taken from St. John of the Cross. And here we're talking 
about supernatural contemplation. In natural contemplation, what you can contemplate a painting or a beautiful sunset, like we gaze upon it, we we meditate upon it, but, but in a very simple way, or we contemplate a way to solve a problem. But these are the word take it contemplation in a purely natural sense, a simple gaze of the mind. Uh, on an external scene or a general attention of the mind to an intellectual idea. That's not what we mean here by supernatural contemplation. Supernatural contemplation is an experimental knowledge of God infused by God himself into the soul. It is not so much the soul trying to think about God, but rather God drawing the soul to himself by infusing knowledge of himself, but experimental knowledge, not clear ideas, but more of a, of a, a personal uh, contact, in a sense, with the soul, and, and infusing into the intellect uh, pure ideas and pure uh, knowledge of himself. And that knowledge is very lovable. To quote St. John of the Cross uh, from various places in his writings where he more or less defines contemplation, he says, mystical theology, which is not in the sense that we use mystical theology. We, we take it as a science uh, that's in a textbook when we say theology, but, but theology in the older theologians meant knowledge of God. So mystical theology or knowledge of God is the mysterious and supernatural knowledge of God, and those who are spiritual call it contemplation. In another place he writes, contemplation is a high state from which in this life, God begins to communicate with the soul and reveals himself to it, yet not completely, unquote. So not completely means that it's not the beatific vision yet. It's still through a glass darkly. It is still obscure, as St. Paul would say, but then in the next life face to face. So it can be very, in a sense, uh, deep and penetrating and uh, absorbing in this life. The, the intellectual vision of God, uh, of the Holy Trinity, can be it could be light years ahead of what the normal Christian Catholic could uh, would know about God in an, in normally, but still it's not the beatific vision. And another place he says, contemplation is called night because it is dim, and that is the reason it is called mystical theology, that is secret or hidden wisdom of God, where without the sound of words or the intervention of any bodily or spiritual sense, as it were, in silence and repose, in the darkness of sense and nature, God teaches the soul, and the soul knows not how, in the most secret and hidden way. And then St. John of the Cross puts these definitions into a real picture of the soul in the following quote from his book, The Living Flame of Love. Quote, the soul must confine itself to being lovingly intent upon God without specifically eliciting other acts beyond those to which he inclines it. It must be, as it were, passive, making no efforts of its own, purely, simply, and lovingly intent upon God as a man who opens his eyes with loving attention." Unquote. So some important elements in, in this kind of prayer is that it is a kind of knowledge of God that he infuses into the soul. It is mystical it's, and secret to the soul, but it has a loving quality to it. It draws the soul because of in love, and this knowledge fuels love in the will, but it draws the soul towards God. Now, the question is, is advanced contemplation 
is these mystical uh, grades of contemplation. Is it extraordinary? The short answer is yes and no. It is not extraordinary in the sense that it is miraculous. Now, this is an area of controversy, but according to theologians like Father Gergou Lagrange and Father Aaron Terrell, contemplation is the ordinary progression of divine grace, that it is the ordinary flowering of grace and the gifts of the Holy Ghost, and that there is a general call to contemplation for all souls. It doesn't mean every single soul actually reaches it, but that it is radically open to all. And for some reason, God does not bring every soul into that state, even even very holy souls, and for reasons known to him alone, but that it is that it is generally in the plan for Christian perfection. Contemplation is in the plan of Christian perfection. That in a sense it is ultimately meant for all souls in this life, or ultimately in the next. Everyone in the next life will be a contemplative. But I think even in this life you can look at the lives of the saints, even the most active saint they had contemplation. Look, St. Ignatius of Loyola, Loyola was a great active saint, but, in a, but he was a great contemplative as well. And the same thing goes for the other saints, St. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux and others who are very active. So according to these theologians, contemplation is necessary for the height of sanctity. Other theologians like Father Poulain, which we have mentioned before, and and uh, one of his um, contemporaries, Monsignor Farges, teaches that contemplation is an extraordinary, rather miraculous state that lies outside the normal progression of sanctity. Only a few are called to it, and then one become can become a great saint without mystical contemplation. So this whole topic is a, is a vast area of controversy. Many books have been written on both sides. Suffice it to say that I agree with Father Gergo Lagrange here and Father Antero and St. John of the Cross and the older contemplative school of thought. Abbot Butler wrote a book called Western Mysticism. And in that, he has an introduction to it, or actually it's called an afterthought. I think it's 126 pages. This is a second edition of the book where he got a lot of criticism for his book, so he went back and wrote another intro. And he sums up this controversy very well. If I recommend Western Mysticism and the afterthoughts, he will put it all in perspective. Now, during the 17th century, the quietist heresy exaggerated certain aspects of the old teaching on contemplation, especially with passivity, uh, the soul being passive to God. They, they cut out all activity of the soul. You can't even resist temptation. That's activity. You have to let God do everything. That is a total abuse of true mysticism or true contemplation. And this caused a great stir among those who did not understand the ways of prayer. And it led them to denounce as quietism true contemplation, and the writings of many Orthodox spiritual writers, among them St. John of the Cross, Orthodox, I'm not saying uh, Greek Orthodox, but Orthodox meaning uh, traditional, among them St. John of the Cross, were nearly condemned due to a misunderstanding of the real problems of the quietist doctrines. Now, St. John of the Cross was before quietism per se, but there was other quiet uh, errors like quietism in his day and, and anti-mystical sentiment that almost caused St. John of the Cross's writings to be burned and St. Teresa of Avila to be persecuted. Now, this led, after the Quietist Doctrine, there was uh, this led more than anything else to the persecution 
subsequently raised against simple forms of prayer. So due to these two influences, quietism and also Jansenism, which was a, a, another extreme of harshness, that the old teachings on mysticism were locked in the basement, so to speak, for centuries, and an effort was made to forget them entirely. And that's what, after quietism, that's what grew this dis sharp and hard distinction between ordinary spiritual life and extraordinary spiritual life, and that we put ordinary, that's ascetical, that's what everyone should go in, and that contemplation is extraordinary, that we shouldn't even seek it, and that uh, we might as well just forget about that. That's only given to a handful of saints, and that we just got to stick to vocal prayer and, and meditation here. Abbot Cuthbert Butler, in his book, Western Mysticism, which I mentioned before, this was uh, in 1926, he says this, quote, the movement of the past quarter of a century, this is from 1900 to his time, the movement of the past quarter of a century may be characterized as a great return to the ideas of antiquity and of the Middle Ages concerning contemplation and its place in the spiritual life. During the 18th century, the idea had come to be accepted as well established that apart from special and unusual calls, the normal mental prayer for all was systematic discursive meditation according to fixed methods. This was taken to be the lifelong exercise of mental prayer for those embarked on a spiritual life, priests, religious, nuns, devout lay folk. Contemplation was looked on as something extraordinary, almost identified with visions, revelations, raptures, even stigmatization and levitation, and other such psychophysical phenomena. Thus, contemplation and mystical theology had come to be regarded as wonderful, even miraculous, to be admired from a safe distance, and left alone as dangerous and full of pitfalls. Such was the common view, such the common practice, almost taken for granted at the end of the 19th century. And later in his book, Western Mysticism, he says, it was the standard teaching of the Catholic ages down to modern times that contemplation is the natural term of a spiritual life seriously lived and is a thing to be desired, aspired to, aimed at, unquote. So obviously, Abbot Butler would agree with the school of thought with Father Gergul Lagrange, and Father Gergul Lagrange wrote some great books uh, defending this doctrine. One is con uh, Christ um, Contemplation and Perfection and uh, the Three Ages of the Interior Life. So the essence of contemplation is ordinary in the sense that it is simply the flowering of divine grace and the progression of the gifts of the Holy Ghost. It is given to the soul for the soul's own sanctification. It's not like an extraordinary gift for other people. However, as Abbot Butler alludes to, what often accompanies advanced contemplation are other extraordinary phenomena like visions and revelations and prophecies, raptures, uh, stigmatization, levitations, and other psychophysical phenomena. These things are not essential to contemplation. They're accidental. They are extraordinary, they are miraculous, and are sometimes given to the saintly soul primarily for the sanctification of others. 
So the technical term for this type of grace or gift is gratia gratis data, a grace given for others. But contemplation is a grace given for you, for your sanctification. It's not extraordinary. It's ordinary in itself, but it is a grace. Now, there are a few other points to briefly touch upon before we talk about the various advanced stages of contemplative prayer in the next talk. The first point is that Infused contemplation necessarily requires sanctifying grace. In contemplation, the gifts of the Holy Ghost operate more freely, and these are inseparable from sanctifying grace and the theological virtue of charity. So you need to be in the state of grace, really, to be a contemplative. You can't just pull someone off the street who has no... uh, um, union with God through baptism and the sacraments and prayer and uh, all those fundamental things that we need that uh, sometimes we find this in in, in uh, the new church. There's a new spirituality we have centering prayer. So trying to make contemplatives uh, without the foundations of Catholics, uh, ascetical life and sacramental life. You need that as well. Contemplation is an expression and one of the effects of love of God. Obviously, you need to be in the state of grace. You can't be committing habitual mortal sin and be a great contemplative at the same time. You need divine charity. And if you're not in the state of grace, you won't have divine charity and you won't be a contemplative. One, either, either one or the other. One, so you have to be in the state of grace to be a contemplative. Now, There could be, perhaps in a contemplative soul, a rare fall. That's different. But habitually, you're in the state of grace, and you are obeying God's commandments. Also, contemplation is an experience of the presence of God. It is experimental knowledge of God, which we have talked about before. It's obscure at first, and then more and more intense. Father Poulain does describe this very well. He says, quote, The real point of difference from the recollection of ordinary prayer is this. In the mystical state, God is not satisfied merely to help us think of him and to remind us of his presence, but he gives an experimental, intellectual knowledge of his presence. In a word, he makes us feel that we truly enter into communication with him. Another point to bring up is that it is impossible to produce mystical contemplation by one's own efforts. It is a grace. And yet, when one is at those stages of the spiritual life, it does become the habitual form of prayer for the soul, a more or less continual state that whenever one does pray, it is that way, that contemplative way. So we can't produce mystical contemplation by ourselves, but you do become able to habitually pray in that way. Whenever you turn your attention to God, contemplation will be there. It is a grace, and yet you have to cooperate. Now, a little bit more deeply about the extraordinary favors. Extraordinary supernatural favors sometimes accompany a holy life, but they're not essential to sanctity, and they're not essential to contemplation. And they can be divided into three main kinds. There's private revelations, the charisms, and other extraordinary phenomena. Private revelation can be defined as a supernatural manifestation of a hidden truth by God made to private individuals, either for their own spiritual benefit or for the benefit of others. Such revelations, which include apparitions and visions, locutions, etc., do not form part of the Catholic faith, which rests upon the deposit of truth 
contained in scripture and tradition, which has been confided to the church for interpretation. Hence, the faithful have no obligation to believe private revelations. After the most intense and scrupulous investigation, the church simply permits them to be published for the instruction and edification of the people as containing nothing contrary to faith and morals and worthy of pious belief. So sometimes mystics have these private revelations, but that is not essential to contemplation. Contemplation is not learning new truths about God or new insights into the faith. It is that experimental loving knowledge of God himself. Now, charisms are extraordinary and transitory gifts given for the benefit of others. For example, prophecy uh, and the power of healing or, or working other miracles. Then there are other extraordinary phenomena such as levitation or the emission of luminous rays or the gift of tears. Uh, and prolonged abstinence from food, etc., uh, etc. Et saint Joseph of Cupertino is perhaps best known as the flying saint for his frequent lev levitations. Saint Catherine of Siena went without any nourishment except the Blessed Sacrament for about eight years. Perhaps the most startling phenomenon is that of the stigmata, the reproduction of our Lord's wounds upon the feet, hands, side, and sometimes the head and the crown of thorns. The first uh, recorded bearer of such a prodigy, and the most famous as well as that of St. Francis of Assisi. And this list of wonders could go on and on. The important point that must be stressed here is that the saints did not become saints because they received visions of Christ or of the Blessed Mother or foretold future or uh, healed the sick or even raised the dead back to life or any other extraordinary favor. The great saints and mystics and spiritual writers and theologians, they're agreed that extraordinary supernatural favors must not be desired or sought after or asked for or envied. One reason is that of themselves, they possess no power to sanctify and deepen the soul's union with God. Also, rather than help the soul, they may prove a great hindrance to holiness due to fallen human nature's evil tendencies. They may become a source of pride and vanity, and such things can also diminish the purity of one's virtue of faith. Unless they see, they will not believe. So such things may easily deceive us as they can be and frequently are confused with other phenomena of the natural order or of a diabolical origin. And in the case of private revelations, there is an immense danger to the integrity of the Catholic faith because they accept everything they read as gospel truth. Some people do, even that which is contrary to the traditional Catholic th theology. Oh, this mystic said this, I accept it. So-and-so said they saw the Blessed Mother. Well, then obviously that's true. That's nonsense. The, the Catholic theology comes first, any private revelations, second, third, fourth on the list. Those uh, people who are over-inclined toward and maybe a little addicted to private revelations and the miraculous are liable to have great illusions concerning their own spiritual life as well. They may indulge in idle daydreams, uh, imagining that they are performing and experiencing these extraordinary things and being venerated by others as a saint. It happens that one may stare so long at a statue or holy picture that they imagine they see it moving. Or they feel some pain in their hands and feet and immediately think, maybe I'm getting the stigmata. So such people could be termed armchair mystics. That is, they imagine God will grant them such things without paying for it by a mortified and holy life. 
So a wise and prudent soul wastes no time in such things because they know they do not lead to true spirituality. So my point again here is that contemplation, mystical theology, mystical contemplation really has nothing to do in itself with these extraordinary phenomena. So there should be no fear of reading about contemplation or uh, uh, mystical contemplation because all you're reading about is how to love God more. It has nothing really to do with these extraordinary things. These are kind of like a footnote in mystical theology, that we have to deal with them. We have to understand uh, how to how to show uh, which ones are true and which ones are false. But in its essence, contemplation is simply that infused loving knowledge of God, and then it gets more and more intense, and it it takes more. It grows more and more in the soul, and drawing it closer and closer to God. So, some other points that we'll quickly go over uh, now is that uh, I will use as section headings um, what's taken from Father Royal's book, uh, Theology of Christian Perfection, in his chapter introducing. Uh, contemplation or advanced contemplation, he has different headings for paragraphs I thought were really excellent. So I'll just go over some of the points here uh, and explain some of them. In contemplation, the soul is more passive than active. We've talked about that, I think, enough. Elsewhere, he writes, infused contemplation gives full security and assurance to the soul that it is under the action of God. Now here, St. Teresa of Avila mentioned this when she had the prayer of quiet and the prayer of union. She said, you have no doubt in your mind that God is present. You have no doubt that it is God uh, contacting you. And, and it doesn't mean private revelations. It is that personal personal loving knowledge of him. You know that he's in the room. You know that he's in, his, in your soul. You know it by experience. Even though you can't explain it, you just know it. Infused contemplation gives the soul moral certitude that it is in the state of grace. Now, this is another point I won't get too deeply in, but because the gifts of the Holy Ghost and grace are becoming more activated in the soul, uh, the soul is aware and certain that it is in the state of grace because it feels God's presence. Father Royal says, the mystical experience is ineffable, unquote. In other words, it is impossible to fully describe the experience adequately in human words. So that's why you have in the mystical writings, um, some highfalutin language, flowery language, poetic language. Um, they speak of, of, of a spiritual marriage. They have to use analogies and similes and metaphors to explain something that it, it's hard to fully understand. Now, it's good for us to read some of that, that we understand that there's more to the spiritual life than just saying some novena prayers, that there is an experience deep, 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 uh, and very satisfying to the soul that it's almost like taste of heaven on earth, but we can't explain it fully. Just like St. Paul said, heaven that the eye is not seen, the ear is not heard, neither as it entered into the heart of man with things God has prepared for those who love him. The same thing in the spiritual life and the, and the, great, and the more advanced stages of contemplation. Father Royal says, the experimental knowledge of God enjoyed during the mystical mystical experience is not clear and distinct, but obscure and confused. Now here, St. John of the Cross explains, quote, 
the knowledge thus received is general and obscure, as the intellect does not understand distinctly what it conceives, so the will also loves generally and indistinctly. It is a vague love, a secret instinct, which carries the soul towards the object beloved. So in a previous episode, I described contemplation as being in a dark room with someone who you cannot see, but you are aware of their presence. God is that being in contemplation whose presence becomes more and more real. You know God is present and yet obscure. You don't see God. You're not receiving any clear concepts about God, but you know him better. It is an experimental knowledge, but knowledge by love. So in contemplation, we do not see God, but we know him by love. It's a different form of knowing, but personal. It's like you can know all about Christ, but yet have never met him. You can know all about your neighbor, all about uh, the president, but if you've never met him, then you don't really know him. You know things about him. Same thing with God. You can read all about him, but you really only get to know him by love through prayer. Father Royal says, contemplation admits of various forms. So this means that sometimes it consists predominantly in the intellect as regards knowledge of God, and sometimes it is predominantly in the will, so where the will is inflamed with love of God. The first is sometimes called cherubic contemplation and the latter seraphic contemplation. St. John of the Cross describes this and explains this. He says, quote, as God is light and love, in this delicate communication, he informs equally the intellect and the will, though at times his presence is felt in the one more than in the other. One soul, for instance, finds herself more filled with knowledge than with love. In another, love is deeper than intelligence. In another place he writes, quote, The mystical influence is exercised directly upon the intellect, and the will participates in it. Sometimes it strikes simultaneously both intellect and will, and then... Love redoubles in strength, tenderness, and perfection. As long as the intellect's purgation is completed, it is the will that most frequently is not completed. It is the will that most frequently takes fire under the divine touch before the intellect receives any perfect communications. Unquote. So this is why we need trials in the spiritual life. It the, the, definitely the night of the spirit, it perfects the intellect and the will to receive that ray of light from God. God is giving knowledge of himself, and that knowledge, because it's, it's, it's um, finding obstacles in the soul, it kind of burns them away, and that burning, that purgation hurts. But you need to go through that, to so all that uh, debris in the soul— um, psychologically or emotionally speaking, needs to be cleared away to fully uh, take in that knowledge that God wants to infuse into the soul. Abbot Lahodi, in his Ways of Mental Prayer, writes, It is above all an experimental knowledge which teaches us more than any amount of reasoning and books. No one knows God like those who have experienced the union of love. Before, they had only heard of him. Now they know him by experience because they have felt, tasted, and as it were, touched with their finger, his goodness, his tenderness, his infinite condescension, condescension his character, unquote. Father Royal says, 
the mystical union admits of variations and fluctuations. So this is obvious. There are degrees to sanctity. So there are degrees to mystical contemplation. Father Royal says, mystical contemplation often produces a suspension or binding of the faculties. Unquote. So this binding of the faculties is called ligature, and I've talked about it in a previous episode. Father Royal says, mystical contemplation frequently causes reactions in the body. And he says, sometimes the intense spiritual delight experienced by the soul causes startling phenomena in the sensitive order. St. John of the Cross teaches, however, that this occurs only in beginners in the mystical life and that they should ignore these reactions and continue the practice of prayer. I already talked about extraordinary phenomena, but I wanted to add some words from Abbot Chapman. His opinion on the subject has always fascinated me. His general theory is that contemplation in itself is not supernatural, but preternatural, that before the fall, Adam was a perfect contemplative. His his lower nature was completely in tune with his his higher nature of will and intellect, and his will and intellect was in perfect tune with grace. So after the fall, with original sin and wounded human nature, that we're out of touch with divine union, and that as the soul becomes more and more perfect, the lower human nature becomes more and more under the power of the soul, and the soul is more and more under the power of divine grace. So grace, in other words, heals the whole man. It heals the soul and the lower nature. So that when the soul is in more and more command of the lower nature, then, then in a sense, we become even masters of nature itself. That's why saints could levitate. You could do other things that seem to uh, have command over um, nature itself. Now, that is a gift from God as well. Uh, there's definitely miraculous things there. But I think in, Adam, in Adam's case, speaking to animals perhaps, perhaps that is more of a, of a preternatural gift that the saints recover because they're so holy. Abbot Chapman writes, quote, The ligature is easily explained in the lower stages, the impossibility of thinking, the fog that comes over the imagination, divorced from the will and intellect, the physical results of the fixity of the intellect. I hold that there is an unfelt astonishment and an absorption of intellect and will. This is still more true of the higher phases, and it seems to me that in rapture and ecstasy, the bodily effects are one result of the astonishment of the intellect, which the imagination does not realize. This seems to be confirmed by the opinions of so many saints that ecstasies are undesirable. And St. John of the Cross, that the bodily effects are due to the body's want of practice. It has not been spiritualized yet to become an organ for the pure intellect. In the highest state, much higher communications produce no rapture. Yet even in that state, raptures do not cease, but merely become infrequent, since God can always give indefinitely higher species to which the soul is as yet unaccustomed. So just to have a footnote here, this is true in the lives of St. John, uh, John of the Cross himself and St. Teresa of Avila. As they grew more and more perfect towards the end of their life, they didn't have ecstasies and uh, raptures and levitations. That's more of a imperfection in itself. It seems to us absurd to say that, that ecstasies and raptures are actually a sign of imperfection, but that is that is that seems to be the case. 
um, that towards the end of their life, they didn't have them. But in the beginning, as they're advancing, uh, their soul could not react to that divine influx of, of sanctifying grace and contemplative knowledge, that it reacted, in a sense, to cause that ecstasy. So Abba Chapman continues, ecstasies are not signs of great spirituality. A very slight communication produces one in a child. A feeble-minded person like my dear St. Joseph of Cupertino goes off more easily. I can tell you of a person raised 18 inches from the ground in the transition from multiplied acts to a continual act of want of God. This was some time ago. He does not know it, and he has not yet the developed prayer of quiet, only the arid prayer. So I think bodily effects may appear at any time. I can't explain them, but doubtless St. John of the Cross is right in connection with the spiritualizing of the body to become a suitable organ. It is perhaps more than a return to atomic conditions, unquote. So this is all that we can get into for this episode. We covered many topics, introducing the concept of advanced mystical contemplation. So the next episode, we will have to describe the various grades of advanced contemplation. God bless you.